Check, check. Good morning. Good morning. Is that coming through okay? Good. Yeah, I was preparing my message last night and checking the score. And uh, yeah. yeah. But the good news is the Lord, the verse of the day came up on my phone and it said, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And I was like, hmm, Thank you, Jesus. It was rough. Got gut punched again. But what do you do? I, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> my, my parents always used to tell me, like, oh, Wes, you're, you're such an old soul. And it's, it's funny because I, I feel like I've carried that over. We, we live in 2018, and there are more technological devices than we know what to do with, and I'm writing out my sermon on my kids' drawing paper, and uh, I've got all my reference notes with... Uh, a ripped-off piece of paper from the bottom and stuck them throughout my Bible, and so I'm, I'm very technologically advanced this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 this morning. Psalm 89. We are going to look at one verse this morning and unpack it. Psalm 89, verse 14. Psalm 89, verse 14, says this. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness Go before you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. That is where we are going today. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for your presence here this morning. We thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness in our lives. God, we commit this time to you right now, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would be honored in our midst, that our hearts would be open to that which you want to say to us, and that, God, we would leave this place equipped and built up and encouraged to follow you with all of our hearts and to live the lives you call us to, God. So, Holy Spirit, we invite you into this time, and we ask that you would be present in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, on my bucket list, aside from going to a a Toronto Raptors game, which they hopefully will win, um, (laughs) on my bucket list is uh, to one day get to Europe. I have not had the privilege of getting over to Europe yet, but it is in my heart. I want to go there deeply. And honestly, if you're, where do you want to go? I could... You could throw a, a map of Europe up on the wall, and I could just toss a dart on and wh- whatever country it landed on and be like, all right, great, let's go there. And I would just, I just want to see it. There's so much history. There's so much 
stuff going on there. I would just love to see it and kind of take it all in. Um, and Tamara and I, when we get a chance to watch a movie or watch a TV show, we love watching uh, movies or TV shows that kind of take place in the past, typically in Europe. Um, we love whether that's a hundred years ago or two, three, four hundred years ago. We love those shows with castles and horses and kings and queens, all that stuff going on. We just, those are just shows that uh, we like. And inevitably what happens in, is in those shows, it comes to a point where a king is on his throne and he's making some kind of decree. And one of the most memorable scenes for me out of all the different movies that um, have a, a throne scene is this scene from the movie called The King's Speech. Um, we have a, little, have a little clip that I want to show if, uh, if we'd be able to bring that up. Um, the King's Speech is a movie that uh, was made in 2011. It stars, it stars Colin Firth and Jeffrey Rush. And it's based around the time when... Uh, his name is Prince Albert, and he, um, he has been forced to take over, as, to rule the throne of England. His brother, who is older than him, abdicates it and leaves the throne, does not want to be a part of it. And so this man, Prince Albert, is now forced to be the next king of England. Throw into that that it, this is happening in 1938, 1939, so it's on the cusp of World War II, and Prince Albert has a speech impediment, and he is deeply, uh, he lacks a great deal of confidence because of his speech impediment. He's unable to communicate properly. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to bring that scene up, but it's a beautiful scene in the movie where he is speaking with his speech coach, and his speech coach is a man who he believes is a doctor. He believes he's a doctor of speech pathology. Turns out he's just a, an actor who has learned how to do speech therapy, and now the king has found out that this man has not a doctor, he does not have credentials, and there are a bunch of higher-ups in, in the courts who are like, how come you're getting trained by a guy who doesn't even have credentials? And it's this beautiful scene where, where this, this moment happens in the throne. I don't know if we'll be able to get it up, but uh, anyway. That being said, the throne, the throne throughout history whether even presently today or in the history of the past, the throne is always symbolic of power and authority. Whenever you see a throne, be it in a movie or a TV show, or maybe you've had the opportunity to, to travel to some of these old castles across Europe or in different parts of the world, the throne always represents power and authority. When you see a throne, you, you imagine in your mind power and authority and a king's right to rule and all of these things. But it's also symbolic of what, how does he wield his power? How does he use his power and authority? Does he wield his power in kindness and in generosity? Or is he a old tyrant <laughs> who forces his power and subjects his people to all kinds of cruelty and oppression? The throne is always a symbol of this. And, and what I wanted to look at this morning in this passage, Psalm 89, 
where it says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, that being God's throne. I wanted to take some time this morning and look at what that means. While the kingdoms of this world are built by violence and injustice, the kingdom of God is built through righteousness and justice. I'm going to repeat that again. While the kingdoms of this world are built by violence and injustice, the kingdom of God is built by righteousness and justice. Amen? Amen. And wherever God is at work extending his throne, extending his kingdom to bear in the lives of other people, it always comes back to this place of a foundation of righteousness and justice. And what I want to do this morning is have a look at what do those words mean? Righteousness and justice. What do they mean? So let's first look at the first word, righteousness. Oftentimes when we hear the word righteousness, what immediately comes to your mind? Oftentimes for me, when I hear the word righteousness, I think about the idea of uh, an infallible morality. <laughs> Does this make sense? When you hear the word righteousness, you think straight A's on your character report card. <laughs> when you think about righteousness, when you think about a righteous person, you think they got all their stuff together <laughs> and they're essentially perfect. They never cuss, they never, uh, they never lose their temper. They're perfectly even-keeled. They're super nice. This, this idea of an inflappable morality often comes to our mind when we think about the word righteousness. But the problem is, is that the Bible doesn't really use the word like that. When we talk about righteousness in the Scriptures, out of all of the characters in the Scriptures, the character in the Bible who is most credited with this idea of righteousness is a man named Abraham. And Abraham, if you've ever gone back and read some of the stories, you will know is not a character. They, they do not portray Abraham as a perfect man. <laughs> they do not at all. In fact, the Bible's pretty honest about some of his shortcomings, about his failures. And yet God deems it appropriate in the scriptures to say, this is a righteous man. Who could tell me why was, why was Abraham credited as righteous person? Because of his faith, exactly. Abraham is known throughout the scriptures as a man of righteousness, not because he has an unfailing morality, but because he has faith. I want to read Genesis chapter 15 to you and just look at this passage right here. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. I'll read it to you. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And this is the key part. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Did you hear that? He believed the promise of God. And the promise of God is credit. When, when Abraham joins the promise of God in faith, God looks at him and says, that's a righteous man. Righteousness, Abraham's righteousness was not born out of a flawless morality. His righteousness was based on rightly relating to God and that being through faith. Does this make sense? Righteousness is not about having a perfect morality. Righteousness is about having faith, is about having faith in God. Um, we, yeah, don't worry about it. Thank you. <laughs> not to worry, you guys. Thank you. <laughs> you can go home and watch the King's Speech. It's an excellent movie. Excellent movie. It won Best Picture in 2011. Very, very good movie. But this is this idea of righteousness that I want us to switch into our minds. Righteousness is not about being perfect. Righteousness is about rightly relating to God, and that is through faith. Can we, can we all agree on that? Righteousness is about rightly relating to God. Now, let's look at that other word, justice, because in our passage it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Righteousness is about rightly relating to God. Let's look at justice. When we think of justice, we most often are brought to think that justice is about the systems in place to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. More or less, when you think about justice, what is justice? More often than not, you are going to be led to think about the systems in place, the policies that we have, the people in power and authority who protect the innocent and punish the guilty. And those systems are perfectly good. I'm very grateful that we have a society that has them because that's important to a healthy functioning society. I don't mean to diminish that at all. I don't mean to diminish the court systems and police officers and all those people who help that system flourish. That's important. Every society throughout history has had some structure of a justice system in, built in place to protect the innocent and punish the guilty. That, that's true in our day, and it was true in the day of the writers of the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament were born into a world in which they inhabited a Jewish law. And so you have the Ten Commandments, you have the Torah, you have all of these things that are constructing a system of justice made to bless those with obedience and to essentially punish those who are disobedient. That is no different than our day as well. But Paul, who is, contributes most of the writings of the New Testament, he was an expert in the law, he was a Pharisee, he knew these laws backwards and forwards, and when he experiences Jesus and encounters the gospel, he has a dramatic re-understanding of what the law means and ultimately of what justice means. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 5, I want to read this passage to you in Galatians chapter 5. After Paul, who completely knew the law, completely knew the Torah forward and back, he understood what the law meant 
After he experiences Jesus and encounters the gospel, this is what he says, Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire system of justice that is prescribed in the Old Testament, if you want to take some time to read it, do it. It's going to take you a little while. But there is a whole elaborate system of justice, essentially designed, more or less, to punish the guilty, protect the innocent. Paul, through encountering Jesus and experiencing the gospel, he looks at all of this and he boils it down and says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor. That is justice. And so if righteousness If righteousness is about rightly relating to God through faith, then justice is about rightly relating to other people through love. If righteousness is about rightly relating to God through faith, then justice is about rightly relating to your neighbor through love. And these are the ideas that I want us to hold in our mind, because in the scripture, in our scripture this morning, it says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Wherever God is working to extend his kingdom, to bring his kingdom to bear into people's lives, righteousness and justice are always there at the forefront. Being able to rightly relate to God through faith and being able to rightly relate to others through love. Now, I understand that this is sort of like, okay, yeah, Wes, we we get it. (laughs) Love God, love your neighbor. Like, you're not telling us anything new. Why I'm fascinated by this verse and why it has just stuck with me over the months as I have meditated on it is very simple, but we can't do one without the other. We cannot do one without the other. The psalmist says rightly, righteousness and justice are both the foundation of your throne. And what I want to do with the remainder of our time is I just want us to examine for a minute what would happen if we do one without the other. So humor me, humor me for a moment. What would happen if, as a church, we chose to pursue righteousness without justice? What would happen if we chose to pursue righteousness, faith in God, love for God, but abdicated responsibility out of love for neighbor? What would happen? What would happen? I think we all know what would happen, and we would become the Christians that we all are frustrated by. (laughs) Right? We would all become those people who are like, we see these people and like, God bless them, they're our brothers and sisters, but they talk a lot about God, but they don't love a lot. And it's so frustrating because you're like, man, these guys play on my team. (laughs) These are my brothers and sisters, but we're we're missing it. We're missing it. And you know what? The Bible actually has, in my opinion, an entire book devoted to 
not just practicing righteousness, but practicing justice together. It's called the book of 1 John. If you want to turn there, please, I have John. <laughs> so the, the author of 1 John and the author of Revelation, they're both named John, but they're two different Johns, okay? Two different guys. John, in, in the book of Revelation, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, that's a, there's a very artistic, a very... Um, nuanced and creative theme to the book of Revelation. First John is as blunt as a spoon. <laughs> he is just like letting you know what he thinks, and that's about it. First John 4 verse 20 says this, if anyone says, I love God, okay, he, so he, <laughs> John has very little nuance. <laughs> John has very little, um, He's not trying to pull at your leg. He's just trying to get to the point. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. <laughs> if anyone says, God, says, I love God, I pursue righteousness, I'm a man of, or a woman of faith. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So John, speaking very boldly and very bluntly, says, look, if you're going to pursue righteousness, you have to pursue justice. If you're going to pursue rightly relating to God through faith, if you're going to pursue love for God but hate your brother, you're a liar. I just love how straightforward he is about it. He's like, liar, liar, pants on fire. You do not get to play that card. You don't. He says it earlier in the passage, in, in, earlier in the book, 1 John chapter 2. Whoever says he is in the light, this is 1 John chapter 2 verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, for the darkness has blinded his eyes. John would say to a church who says, we're about righteousness. We're about loving God. And I, I guess we'll get around to loving people sometime. He would say, you're walking in darkness and you're a liar. You don't actually love God. <laughs> this is a sobering book. <laughs> like, like just, he, would, he would just like, no, you're a liar. You're not telling the truth. That doesn't work. Because you can't, you can't say you love God and not love your brother. You haven't even seen God. You've seen your brothers. You've seen people walking around. How can you say you love God but not love them? We cannot afford as a church to be a people who say, oh, I per we're, we're about faith and not about loving our neighbor. And you know what, to be honest, I'm so proud to be part of a community that we don't have this problem. I believe so strongly, I am so proud of our community. We are a community that does, I, I really do believe, we are a community that, that walks the walk and talks the talk. We are a community that seeks to love people well. We're not perfect, we don't get it right all of the time, but more times than not, and I have experienced it in my own life, and I've seen it witnessed in all of your lives, 
that we are a community that deeply cares about loving people well. Whether it was, you know, I, I was having a conversation with Lloyd this week, and he was telling me uh, a few years ago when uh, we sent a team down to visit Juan down in Mexico, and how you guys just, uh, the team went and uh, went to the Costco and just bought him, him and his family, just, just grocery carts and grocery carts of food for his family. Like, this is the kind of stuff our community does. We, we hold bottle drives to send the Africa team over. We, we, make, we make clothing to, to, to see these little girls put on these dresses. We, we, we go to the dog park to pick up dog poop just for the sake of picking up dog poop because nobody else wants to do it. This is who we are as a community, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. We are not just a community that says, yeah, we, we love God, but then we're like, eh, we're not too great at loving people. No, we are a community that is good at loving people. We don't get it right all the time. We're not perfect. But I'm so proud to be part of a community that cares about that. And I, I believe that it, that is actually a core conviction of ours. And it's an honor to be a part of this community. But let's flip it around for a moment. We've looked at, well, what happens if we pursue righteousness without justice? Let's, flip, let's turn the tables. What happens if we pursue justice without righteousness. What would happen if we would pursue love of neighbor without love of God? What would happen if we just decide we're going to love our neighbor, but that whole faith thing is nah? What would happen? We live in a very interesting period of time in our, in our history where more and more we are becoming aware and whether you come from a faith background or not, we are becoming more and more aware that love for neighbor is important. We are, though we're not a perfect society, there is a strong feeling of justice or, or a desire to see justice happen, equal rights, and all of these things, the sort of love for neighbor that is present within our society, within our culture. But the issue is, is that you don't have to be a person of faith to do that. There are many people, and you know them, they're in your family, they're in your workplace, they're your, they're your friends, who are good, honest people who care a lot about loving, your, loving their neighbors, but don't give a rip about faith. And there is a temptation that is happening, I believe, to the church right now that is trying to say, look, it, it's just about loving your neighbor, so who cares about the faith thing? Like, whatever. It's just about loving your neighbor. So don't worry about, the, like, like, in the end, that's what it's all about anyway. So don't, don't worry too much about the loving God and the whole faith thing. And I can speak honestly because as a, I will say this about my generation, that that is the truth. My generation is a generation that deeply cares about justice, deeply cares about equality, deeply cares about trying to love people well. And I'm proud to be a part of that generation. But the problem is, is that we don't, what, what the pendulum has swung where it's like, well, that's what it's about, so why care about faith? 
Why care about the kind of practices and traditions and the kind of legacy that has been passed on from one generation to the next? Why do, you re- why, why do we really need to care about that? That doesn't really matter that much. It's about loving your neighbor. And I believe this is incorrect for two reasons. I believe that is a, a fault, a, an incorrect way of thinking for two reasons. Number one, when you disengage from a life of faith, you cut off the source of strength and power from God to love others well. When you disengage from a life of faith, the type of practices, call them traditions, maybe that's a stuffy word to you, I like that word. <laughs> if, when you cut yourself off from a life of faith, you cut off the power source that is God abiding in you in order to love other people well. You see this all the time in young people. You see this all the time in 20-year-olds who are just zealous and who are just like, I'm going to change the world, man. What's your life plan? I'm just going to, this whole thing sucks, and I'm going to change it. I'm going to do something. It's going to be awesome. What are you going to do? I don't know, man. It's going to be awesome. And they're just zealous, and they're just excited, and they're just going to like, yeah, man, we're going to take this thing on. And they're not connected to God. And so they are running on the steam of their own ego. They are running on the steam of their, the, all the strength and charisma they can muster. And that is a recipe for burnout real quick. It is. That's why you see all these zealous 20-year-olds who are like, I'm going to change the world, man. And then five years later, you're like, what happened to your plan? And you're like, I don't know, it got hard. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, you know. I, I, got, I got busy, and, you know, I was growing my Instagram account, and I was, it's just like, got hard, man. And... and, and and it's so, it's so fascinating to me because, because you're trying to love your neighbor. You're trying to pursue justice apart from righteousness, and it doesn't work. You're not rightly connected to the vine, so it doesn't, it's not surprising that you're not going to bear fruit. Being rightly connected to God, rightly relating to God in a life of faithful obedience, that is where the strength comes from. That's where the supply of the life of God actually enables you to love, to love your neighbor well. Being formed in a life of faith that is actually going to position and empower you to make a difference in the world, to love your neighbor well. That's the first thing I would say, that... Why, why that kind of justice without righteousness thinking is incorrect. The second thing is this. We live in an age of increasing, increasingly polarized and increasingly um, increasing tribalism. We live in an age where you can't just sit down with someone anymore who you disagree with and have a friendly discourse and dialogue. It doesn't exist anymore. The ability to just sit down with someone and be like, have a healthy conversation, who you see differently on. That world, it's fading quickly. The lines in the sand are being drawn in a very distinct way, 
And tribalism is this idea that where you fall on the lines, that's now your identity. Tribalism is increasingly becoming a predominant idea in our culture. And as people become more and more, it becomes more and more polarized, and more and more people are not able to have healthy discussions and talk through differences. It's now, which side are you on? Pick one, and whoever, whatever camp you're in, they're your enemy over there. And this is increasing more and more in our society, in our culture. I'm not trying to get political. I'm saying this is the climate that we live in, and I'm just trying to be honest about it. Where you fall on Trump or not Trump or Trudeau or not Trudeau, all of the sudden, that little bit of tension rises in you. You know what that is? It's called tribalism. And you begin to identify. You begin to draw your sense of identity of who you're for and who you're against. And our world is increasingly becoming more and more polarized, more and more separated, more and more divided, and more and more that little bit of like who you're for and who you're against is, is forming how people see themselves. And what happens in that climate is when you take a stand and you say, I'm on this side, I'm over here. I'm for these people and these things, and this is where I am. And I love these people. And it comes from a sincere place. It does. It comes from a sincere place to say, I want to love these people. But what happens is that when tribalism takes root, your love for these people translates you must hate those people over there. And what happens is that in the name of love, you begin to hate in the name of love, you begin to hate. And that's completely backwards. Why a life of faith matters, why a life of being rightly connected to God in faith matters, is because it is through divine encounter and revelation, I believe, is the only cure to tribalism. Divine revelation of how God sees other people is the only cure to tribalism. Because without divine revelation of the other, they will just stay the other, and you will not see them as brother. Without divine revelation, without God speaking to your mind and causing your view to lift, the other will just stay the other, and you will not see them as brother. Let me show you in Scripture where this happens. Acts chapter 10. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10. At this point, the, the conversion of Saul has already happened. Saul has been, he, he's been, conform, he, he's accepted the gospel, and now he is Paul. This is roughly 10 years or so after Pentecost. And this is the story of the conversion of Cornelius, who is a Roman officer. And 
If you remember the story, I'm not going to read all of it. Cornelius, he's a righteous man. He believes in the one true God. He gives alms to the poor, and he's praying, and he has a vision. He has an encounter with an angel, and the angel tells him, Cornelius, you need to call Peter. He is at Joppa, and you need to call for him. He has a message for you. This angel appears to this man, Cornelius. So Cornelius sends his attendants to go and get Peter. And Peter has an encounter with God, and this is where it starts. Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation. I have sent them. I want to skip down to the bottom at verse 28. Peter has this vision. Peter is a Jew. Jews do not associate with Gentiles. It is the law. And at this point, Peter is still obeying that law. He is a follower of Jesus, but he's still deeply entrenched in his Jewish worldview. Gentiles are the others. Do we get this? Gentiles are the others. They are the people who they are not supposed to associate with. They're not supposed to eat their food. They're not supposed to dine with them in their house. They're not supposed to be associated with them in any way, shape, or form. And Peter has this vision where these common foods, which he is not supposed to eat, come to him in a vision. He says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. He says, no, 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 I can't do that. And God... God says to him through divine revelation, what God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter has this incredible revelation that he now explains in verse 28. He's before them. He, he comes to Caesarea where, where, um, where Cornelius is and he says, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Peter is entrenched in a worldview that says, we are right, they are wrong. We are insiders, they are outsiders. We are clean, they are unclean. And he experiences divine revelation that now propels and elevates his thinking to a place of understanding that says, everyone's included. 
No one is left out of this good news. Everyone is welcome to come. And now, being entrenched in a kind of tribalistic thinking that says, it's only the people over here who are welcome, Peter, through divine revelation, is lifted to a place where he now says, everyone is welcome. He says, but God has shown me. God has shown me I should not call any person unclean. Being rightly connected to God in a life of faith is the only thing that is going to transcend our tribalism and break down the walls of hostility that divide us. And so for the person who says, oh, it's just about loving people. It's just about loving people, man. Who cares about that faith stuff? No. No, this faith stuff is actually deeply important because Peter is in a posture of prayer. He's a faithful Jew sitting at the top of the roof praying at the sixth hour. And in that place, divine revelation hits him in the face. And he is now transformed in his thinking where he realizes everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. You cannot practice one without the other. A life of faith, rightly practiced, <laughs> is going to transform your thinking of how you see other people. It just is. And if it's not transforming your thinking of how you're seeing other people, you're not practicing it rightly. You're not. Because righteousness, if it's rightly, if it's rightly relating to God through faith, when God speaks, we obey. <laughs> And God speaks to Peter and says, don't call something unclean that I've called clean. And Peter goes, okay, this is way out of my zone, but God has shown me I'm not supposed to call anybody unclean. And that, that step of faith opens up the gospel to the rest of the world, i.e. us. <laughs> Righteousness and justice, rightly relating to God through faith, and justice, rightly relating to others in love. This is the foundation of God's throne. This is the foundation of God extending his rule, extending his kingdom, extending his loving rule to bear in people's lives. And we cannot do one without the other. A life of faith is important. A life of, you say, like, can I just be really honest and vulnerable? My generation is facing the temptation right now of saying, why do I need to go to church? Like, why? It's a pain. I got to bring my kids. And I don't get anything out of the service. And I'm like, like isn't it just about loving your neighbor? Like, I'm a nice person. I believe in God. Like, 
what, like, who cares if I don't come? And I just need to be honest and, and speak to my generation and say, enough. Snap out of that. A life that is rightly connected to God through faith is, in, is involved in the practices of faith. It's involved in the practices of faith. And as you engage in the practices of faith, who knows, God might show up. <laughs> but if you decide, nah, I'm, just, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm just going to love people. And I believe, I'm, I'm going to put my faith in a corner. And it's, it's good. It's good. It's fine there. I believe in God. It's all good. It's all good. I don't really need to engage in the kind of practices that are going to form my spirit and form my life in a kind of direction. Like, nah, I don't, I'm, a good, I'm a good person. Okay, I'm nice. I'm a nice guy. You are deceiving yourself. Because the foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. You can't do one without the other. It is about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and about loving our neighbor as yourself. And you can't do one without the other. It is tempting in our society to just pick love your neighbor. It's easier. But I want to challenge us this morning that we must do both. And this is not a heavy-handed, legalistic, you're not coming to church. That, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the foundation of God's throne is extended through righteousness and justice. I want to see God move in people's lives, in our community, in our region. But the scripture says that his throne is extended through both of these things. So let's be a people of both of these things. Let's be a people who take seriously both, not one at the exclusion of the other, but both.